Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For to us a son is given, a child is born. A gift is given to us. It's a special child. This child is a ruler, as Isaiah would say, a ruler, a special king. He's coming to bring a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Fast forward 700 years from Isaiah's prophecy to the time of Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It says in Matthew's gospel in verse 21, Chapter 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The king has arrived, this great Messiah to bring the kingdom, and at this inauguration, the angels come and talk to Joseph and Mary, and they give him a commission. There's a certain way that he's going to bring this kingdom into existence, you're going to call him Jesus. Why? Why give the baby this name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the same word as Joshua, is where we get Jesus from. Joshua means to deliver. It's no coincidence that Joshua was the one to deliver the people of God, to lead them into the promised land. And here Jesus, the new Joshua, is here to deliver the people not from an enemy, not from a physical enemy, but from a spiritual, from sin and bondage to sin and the judgment of God. And what must he do? How is he going to deliver his people and save his people from sins? And that's what we're looking at this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. How is Jesus going to save the people from their Sins. As Blake mentioned last week, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. He came with a mission. And this morning we're peering into the last moments of that mission of Jesus, the culmination of his ministry here on earth, where he will give his life for the people of God, for their sins. That's what Christmas is about. The Christmas story is about the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. And I have no outline for this message. One main point that I hope you get. And that is God in Christ is with us and he is for us. God is with us and God is for us. Let's pray. Mm, Father, we bow before you. And before your holy word, 
God that articulates the greatest evil to ever scar this world. An evil that scars your body. And we bow before the sacred word of God and we just ask, Lord, for grace this morning that we would come with sobriety, we would come with seriousness, but God, that we would come with open hearts to receive the gift, to receive it as a gift, and to rejoice in it. God, would you be gracious to us this morning and lead us to Calvary, lead us to the cross, lead us to yourself, lead us to your son, Jesus. May he be glorified. And may our joy be filled to overflowing this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to begin back in verse 33, which Blake covered a little bit last week, but it's also a bit of a hinge verse. And we're going to start there as it sort of sets our context. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Something very unique and interesting going on here that we can't miss in these details. There's three hours of darkness that are hitting Calvary in the middle of the day when the sun is highest and the sun would have been most bright. Darkness covers the land for three hours from 12 to 3. Darkness in the Bible, it's a, it's a sign of judgment all throughout the Bible. No one likes darkness. Humanity does not like darkness, and if darkness comes, it's a sign of judgment. That's what's happening here. There is a judgment that is coming inside of creation. It reminds us of the last plague that took place on the Egyptians before the Passover. The last plague was three days of darkness on them. They were groping around in darkness because the judgment of God was falling on them. Darkness. And here, for three hours, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And it's a very ominous picture and tone here. It's, it's like if you've ever had a storm creep up on you and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you just, it's electric. And you just know something bigger is going on in this moment. Something big and bad. Something ominous. And that's what's happening here. Something very big, and something very bad is happening. And the point, one of the points that is being brought out here is that this is no ordinary darkness. And it's no ordinary judgment. But it is a judgment from God. When judgment starts happening through creation, you don't point to any human to say, hey, you're doing that. You point to God. God brings the judgment. And what Mark is trying to show us, again, that we've been talking about throughout the end of this, while everybody is accountable for their sin and their evil, Jesus is not being trapped on the cross. He's not being trapped on the cross. This is not ultimately the judgment of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is not the judgment of Herod and Pilate. That's not why Jesus is ultimately on the cross. 
He's there because this is the judgment of God. Wrath is being poured out on Jesus, the Son. And he's in untold agony here. Untold agony. We can't even really know the extent of crucifixion and the, the pain that he would have been enduring this moment. He's, he's, he's hanging here for three hours, the, the spikes in his hands and his feet, and in order to breathe, the victims are, are hanging over and blood's filling their lungs, and in order to breathe and to get your next breath to prolong your life, you have to push up from your feet that are resting on a spike and pull up from your hands that are pinned with a spike. It's excruciating pain. And as Blake talked last week, he has been scourged. He's marred beyond human resemblance. A crown of thorns driven deep inside of his head. And he hangs here for hours. For hours. In darkness, the light of the world, hanging here in darkness. Darkness around him and darkness inside him. Everything has gone dark. But that's not the most of his pain. is not physical. There's greater pain going on here. We see that in the next verse. Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Much greater than the physical pain is the spiritual and the relational agony of this moment. This is a sublime moment. that we must tread very lightly in. There is profound mystery. The depths of pain here, the depths of agony, the depths of mystery here, the eternal Son of God crying out to the eternal Father by the power of the Spirit of God, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we do with that? With a loud voice, he cries. My guess is he's, he's screaming it. What we first do here is not pounce on it and trying to understand this. That's not what we first do. We first just listen. We listen. We listen to the cry from Jesus. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? 
Can you hear it this morning? Can you hear the cry? The Son of God? We're going to be unpacking that for all of eternity. For the depths of all that this is, means, and stands for. But we are to enter into this cry, listening to it. And first, we need to understand that it is a cry of agony. A cry of intense pain, relationally between the Son and the Father. Jesus is fully divine, but here his humanity is, he's also fully human, and that humanity is on full display. And his divinity surrendered to this moment in this specific way. He could pull himself off of the cross if he wanted to. But he's here. And the agony is, all he's known for eternity past is the eternal smile of his Father in heaven. It's all he's ever known. My God, my Father is pleased with me, infinitely pleased with me, rejoices in me, loves me. All I've ever felt is his smile. All I've ever felt. And here, he's not feeling the smile. He's feeling wrath. He's feeling a rod against his very soul. And in the depths of his being, he's crying out with a very real forsakenness. He's not making that up. He is forsaken in this moment by his God, by his eternal Father. The wrath and the judgment of God pours out on him. And that's painful. That is painful, unlike anything he had ever experienced. The cry is a cry of real physical and spiritual pain and agony. But that cry, if we listen, we also get to hear that it is also a cry of faith. Is Jesus breaking faith in this moment, crying out to God like this? Not at all. It is the cry of faith. It is the cry of faith. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. That's exact words of how Psalm 22 would begin, which is David's own unique experience. David pens his own prayer of feeling forsaken by God. And as he works through his psalm, he, he's articulating what's happening to him. And he moves from this place of forsakenness to a place of trust an honest apprehension of what's going on in the situation and his suffering. But he's moving through it with trust, and as we see at the very end, with radical faith. David is speaking from his own experience, but he's speaking prophetically about the experience of Christ. He's pointing to Christ. Even verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And as that psalm goes on, I love how it finishes should go back and read the whole psalm. But a paraphrase at the end, David is saying, but this is what I know. I, 
will speak with the brothers in the congregation. I will be with my brothers in the congregation. I will lead them. I will speak of your faithfulness. I will tell them of your goodness. I will lead them in praises. We will all praise the name of God together forever. A generation is going to tell the next generation, the unborn, about the righteousness of God. And how the glory of God is going to go to all the families of the earth. All the nations will come and worship God. That's the faith of David in that moment. And that is the faith that Jesus has in this moment. Jesus is carrying this faith. I will speak of your goodness in the congregation. We will praise your name forever. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. He knows what was happening in his baptism and what that was pointing to. He knows what's happening when he predicted his death and resurrection multiple times with his disciples. He knows what's going on at the Lord's Supper. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He's not breaking faith. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endures. He is forsaken, and he keeps the faith. He is forsaken, and he does not break faith. Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and oil and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. They're misinterpreting this cry the way that he's maybe calling to Elijah, calling for Elijah to come. And they think they're about to have another show. Let's wait. Let's wait for a different show. They want to see a show of God. Maybe Elijah will come down and save him and pull him off of the cross. They want a show. The great irony is the show is right before them. And they're missing it. You want a display of God? It's right here. It's right here hanging before you. And they are missing it. Jesus is not interested in coming down from that cross. He's not calling to be saved. He's interested in going all the way, going the distance, giving himself. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The eternal son of God, the author of life, who spoke the stars into existence and who breathed air into humanity's lungs is now having his life extinguished at the hands of humanity. And he breathes his last. The Son of God died. It's the world's greatest evil. And it's the world's greatest 
tragedy. It struck me this week in my study, just imagining Jesus hanging there in all of this pain and agony and closing his eyes for the last time. And what he's closing his eyes on is just not beauty and not goodness, but evil. It's the last thing our Savior sees when he closes his eyes. Darkness all around him and darkness being poured out on him. And he dies. But it's here that this tragedy, this greatest act of evil, becomes the greatest news in the whole world and in all of history. This is a turning point. The loud cry that Jesus makes here, Mark doesn't tell us that, but in the other Gospels we learn that Jesus cried out, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. What is finished? His mission is finished. What is it? It's finished just, just your dying? No, oh, so much more. So much more if we will have eyes to see it. If we'll have ears to hear it. At that very moment, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There has always been a curtain. A curtain inside Inside the Jewish temple, the, the temple where God's presence resided in the Holy of Holies, and there was a divide, a curtain between the presence of God and the people of God. A curtain had always separated God from man. That was the way God designed it. It had to be that way. The sitting of presence that you mess with. You tremble before this presence, the Holy of Holies. No, this righteous person among you, your high priest, he's only allowed to go in there one time a year. And you better tie a rope around his ankle because there's a good chance he's not coming out. And you're not going in there to get him. You drag him out. You don't mess with the presence of God. It is a consuming fire that will consume sinners. This has always been the way that it's been since Adam and Eve and the garden. There was a time in our history when man enjoyed sweet fellowship with God our Creator. We enjoyed it, uninterrupted fellowship. We enjoyed the smile of God upon us. We lived in the light of His glory underneath His rule. And it was good. It was very good. We were in paradise. We lived in the smile of God. And then Satan sneaks in 
tempts us, lies to us. We believe the lies. We eat the forbidden fruit, and we blow it. Sin, sin enters into the equation, into the relationship between us and God, and now we are cursed. We, we are sinful man now, kicked out of the garden of God's presence. There's no going back in there. We would be consumed to go back in there. And yet God keeps chasing us. And so he institutes sacrifices. He institutes ways that he can continue to be our God and we can be his people. And it involves so many barriers and hoops. And primarily, sacrifices. You want me to keep being with you people? You want to keep enjoying my smile? There's a certain way you need to live. You need to live my law. And I'll be your God. You need to keep sacrificing for your sin. And I'll continue to be your God. Right there in Genesis 3, though, a prophecy is made, a hope-filled prophecy that all these sacrifices and things were pointing to. In the middle of judgment, this hope-filled prophecy is given that someone is coming through the line of Eve. A Messiah will come. A Messiah will come. And he will destroy the works of the devil. He will, he will crush the head of the snake and he will have his heel bruised in the process. But until then, I'm going to dwell with you, and it's going to have all these conditions wrapped around it. And over and over and over and over, the sacrifices would have to be made. Because none of them were good enough. None of those sacrifices could remove sin. Neither could they really atone for anything. <laughs> The blood of an animal is going to make a holy God happy with my sin, with human sin? That's ridiculous. It's not atoning for anything. It only can atone as you apply faith to those sacrifices and to what they are pointing to. Sin still remains, judgment still remains. What nobody could see coming. As they would hold on to these promises of this great king who was coming. This great everlasting kingdom that God is bringing. What they couldn't see coming is that the, the prophecies in Isaiah about this great king. Are the, is the same person as the suffering servant. The exalted king of Isaiah 9 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's how the kingdom of God is going to come through and into humanity. You don't take care of sin, there's no kingdom. Nobody could see that coming. Isaiah 53, he will bear the iniquity of his people. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. That's what the son is going to do. 
And the son in that crushing triumphs. He triumphs. He triumphs over sin, Satan, and the grave to inaugurate the kingdom of God. I love how John Stott summarizes this great summary of salvation. That divine love triumphs over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. The parallels here of what God is doing in the death of Jesus and in the temple cannot be missed. It cannot be missed. This is the sacrifice. Jesus was born to die, and he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is no coincidence that this is happening at Passover. I mean, that just blows my mind. They are celebrating Passover right now. Right now in our story. Jerusalem is swelling with people coming into the city to slaughter lambs as they celebrate the Passover for when God delivered them from Egypt in bondage with blood over the doorpost with the sacrifice of a lamb. And here they are celebrating that lamb inside the city. And while that's happening, the true lamb of God is outside the city being slaughtered. A sacrifice not offered by man but a sacrifice offered by God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the veil was torn, the curtain was torn, and the presence of God is unleashed. But listen, not that we would fear it, not that it would consume us, because it has consumed Christ in our place. In that moment, justice is served. Our guilt, our punishment, paid in full. We read it just now in Colossians. The record of debt that stood against us, nailed to the cross. Hallelujah. Every single one, nailed. Look for your sin, church. As Martin Luther says, look for it. Look for your sin. Don't find it in yourself. Find it there. That's where it's nailed. That's where it's nailed. You, son, you, daughter, are free. Justice is served. The penalty has been paid. And grace is unleashed on the earth. The death of Christ is the death of death, the death of the Jewish system, and it is life for all who would believe. Grace unleashed to humanity. A grace that says, church, there's nothing more you can do. There is nothing you can do to make me love you any more than I already do. Nothing. And there's nothing you can do that's going to stop me from loving you. Grace. The gift of Christmas. God is saying, I love you. The war is over. The hostility between God, holy God and sinful man, over. 
Christ put forward as the propitiation for our sin, the sacrifice. When that happens, all the wrath and the anger of God that was poured out of him in that moment, gone. In its place, peace. Peace. Saying to us, give up the fight. Stop holding on to our sin. Stop holding on to judgment. Flogging ourselves, condemning ourselves. Christ is saying the law has been fulfilled in your place. Receive it. We hear the cry of forsakenness as the cry of untold, unimaginable agony. We hear the cry of forsakenness as a cry of faith. And finally, we must hear it as a cry of love. He's crying on the cross because he loves you. That's why he's there. That's why he is there. Unbelievable love is on display. It's where we belong. Not him. Not him. He did nothing wrong. It's where we belong. Will you see it this morning? Will you hear his cry of forsakenness as a cry of love for you? In that moment when he dies, he secures the eternal smile for us. I mean, this is what we can't get over. He took God's anger. He let go of the eternal smile of God in this moment so that he could give it to you. God never looks at you any other way. He looks at you on the basis of Christ. It is a smile. The face of God is directed towards you through Christ, and it is a smile. It is a smile of favor, not one we tremble and are scared of, one that we are rejoicing in and glad for. <clears throat> Martin Luther said, look there at the cross. There is your hell. There's your hell. See it there. And there also, see your uncertain election made sure. Nothing's changing, church. If we believe in this gospel, nothing changes, ever. Nothing can change. Signed, sealed, secured, before God, eternal smile. Nothing can get in the way. What can get in the way? The Son's been given. The, the infinite, perfect sacrifice of the Son, the righteous one, He's been given. What can get in the way? Your sin problem? Our bad attitudes? Our pride? Our failures over and over and over again? Whatever? Nothing can get in the way of that. Hallelujah. Right? Praise God. Praise God. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. 
But he says to his disciples right before he leaves, I will never leave you nor ever forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of age. Go. 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 May you be persecuted. May you die. May everything hit the fan. I'm not leaving you. How could I? I have gone to the depths for you. I have tasted suffering for you. I have tasted pain for you. I have tasted the anger of God for you. There is no cry that you have that I've not already cried for you and in your place. He is the one, the, as, as one scholar has made clear, I just love that this, this week. He is the inclusive crier. He cries as the voice of fallen humanity. We all can find that cry. He's voicing it for all of us. Is that not the way that we feel? Do we not feel God forsaking us sometimes in this world, this dark world? Death coming to us all. There's no escaping it. Death hitting my family this week. This world is broken and filled with darkness. It's a God-forsaken world. And Christ goes to the cross to cry out for all of us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we, in the face of death, can say God never will forsake us. We feel forsaken, but we're not. Praise God. God is with us. God is for us. He is with us as a human. As the inclusive, the exclusive is, he's the one for the many. He cries like us, but he also cries for us. No one cries like he cries. No one's doing what he's doing in his death. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The soldier would have been very well familiar with this saying, son of God. It was very popular. Julius Caesar, at some point, thinks that he's a god, so he assumes his own throne, says that he's God, makes everybody call him God. Then Augustus Caesar gets passed down onto him. What do they call Augustus Caesar? Son of God. That's where God belongs. Reigning in Rome. King. Pompous. King. The applause of man. The praise of man. Comfort of the throne. That's where the king is, right? So let's call him God. This soldier sworn into loyalty, knew that very well. And we would, he would have said it many times. And in this moment, we have a confession of faith. <laughs> that might be where the world says a king belongs. But I'm staring at one right here. Something about the way that this man is dying, this soldier says, behold, the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. In suffering, it is made clear to me. Not in the tower. 
on this cross of wood bearing a curse. And Mark, this is the first time this confession actually happens in Mark's gospel. Mark has been driving us to this end throughout the whole book. It's there in verse 1, chapter 1, as Mark narrates it, nowhere in the story is the confession made until here from a centurion. Everybody that was supposed to get the confession missed it. The religious know-it-alls missed it. The disciples closest to Jesus missed it. God can't suffer. No way. God on a cross, no way. Missed it. One writer brings it out, he says, it is left to a pagan soldier, a centurion, the backbone of the Roman army, from whom other loyalty was demanded, who stands looking upward at the last of his serrated corpse of a Galilean peasant on a Roman gallows to give the final verdict in the words of this imperial title. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Right here we see faith, active, real faith, coming to see the Christ, coming to acknowledge the Son of God. They're getting it. They are getting it. Are we getting it this morning? Are we going to miss this? Are we going to miss this in Christmas? No, this is Christmas. This is Christmas, church. He was born to die. For the joy set before him. Right, and they, their vantage point was so limited. All they could see was Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering in agony. He wouldn't stay dead. These are the same women that would go to his tomb three days later. The stone is rolled away. He comes out of the grave. Our Savior is vindicated. You're not a criminal. <laughs> he laid down his life, and he picked it back up again. He died on a throne, a bloody throne made of wood, and he ascends to the throne of God at the right hand of glory. How can we miss it? We have the whole glimpse of the, of the redemptive narrative. He dies, he's buried, he raises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, he's reigning at the right hand of God, and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead, bringing a new heavens and a new earth to wipe away every tear, every bit of suffering. Satan thrown into the eternal lake of fire, never to bother the people of God again. Back into the presence of God like it was. Not on the basis of what we have done or could do, but on the basis of the Son of God in our place. <laughs> Hallelujah. That is Christmas. We're going home. We're going back to be with our Father, our God, the fullness of His presence. The garden not isolated, the little place on the earth, but the whole of the new heavens and new earth being the presence of God. That is where we're going. Will you make the confession this morning?
Will you bow the knee? More importantly, will you receive the gift? Let go of your pride that refuses the gift. Receive it. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas. The gift of a baby boy born as a human. God in the flesh to become one with us. We thank you for the gift of the cross. Tasting suffering with us. And God, we thank you even more for not just coming to be with us, but to bring us to God. We thank you that your life and death is for us, and we ask for the grace now to simply receive and rejoice. We will be with you in your joy, with you and you in the center of the congregation, leading us in the eternal praise around the eternal throne, where all the nations of the earth and all the families of the earth gathered around you, praising your great name. May it be done according to your will, grace upon grace to your church. In your name we pray, amen.